Welcome to the USU Beef Educator Series podcast. This is Dr. Ryan Larson, along with Drs. Matt Garcia and Eric Thacker. I am the farm management, ranch management specialist with USU Extension. Dr. Eric Thacker is our rangeland specialist, and Dr. Matt Garcia is our uh, beef specialist. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Today we wanted to, the main topic of discussion. We wanted to to review and, and and look at different options is focused on drought. I think oftentimes we don't think about drought till it's too late. And once again this year, you know, our, our conditions change rapidly and we're starting to see those drought conditions come into come into the state. Um, Dr. Thacker, what have you seen so far as as far as drought conditions? Well, it's, it's certainly shaping up to be um, a dry year and the conditions are variable. You know, parts of the northern part of the state have gotten some pretty good precipitation lately. And so whether it's enough to kind of bring us out of the drought or not, I don't, I don't know. But um, it certainly looks like it's shaping up to be fairly dry. We, we warmed up a little bit quicker than normal and just didn't see a lot of spring precip. So... Um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but we were <clears throat> we were looking at a pretty high likelihood early on of of an extended drought period through the summer. One interesting thing about the state of Utah is is our different climate zones, and that's a I mean when you talk about the the varying conditions from north to south, I mean what what do you see from a rangeland perspective? Well, I think that's a really good point. Ryan, because it's hard to just make a blanket statement about what's occurring in the state. And so you can pretty much divide the state, you know, in terms of precipitation up into kind of two two or three zones. So obviously you have the northern Utah zone, which is kind of a classic Great Basin, you know, fall, spring precipitation patterns. Um, then as you get into the southern part of the state, it gets a little more complex. You, if you kind of draw a line from... Um, the high Uinas Mountains and then down the Wasatch back east of that line we see more monsoonal precipitation or summer precipitation which changes the way our rangelands respond because um, on that part of the state we start to see some pulses of precipitation in July and into August um, we see more warm season grasses show up on that side of the state and then as you push south on the on the on the western side of the state again we see mostly a a spring fall precipitation pattern but it's just much drier than it is in the northern half of the state uh, as you get down into st george area you even get into kind of the mojave desert which is notoriously dry and hot so um, our our conditions you know in a given year can be highly variable you can have some parts of the state that are experiencing some very severe drought while other parts of the state generally are you know maybe moderate drought or, or not even in a drought per se, and so it can be quite variable. And that's what makes it difficult is what works in one part, right? As, as we talk about strategies and, and ways to, to manage through drought, it's highly dependent on, on location. Yeah, and you know, we even see, you know, like a couple of years ago, it was interesting in western Utah, you know, the north side of the Raft River Mountains received quite a bit of moisture, and so most of the drought monitors suggested that it was a pretty good year in northern Utah, northwestern Utah. However, the south side of the Raft River Mountains did not receive the same amount of precipitation, so they experienced a, a pretty severe drought. 
So it makes it hard to kind of give, you know, these rule of thumbs that apply very broadly in terms of conditions on a year like this because it's highly variable. And, you know, the caveat we've thrown out on all these podcasts is these are informational. So don't, you know, view these as a prescription of how to survive. Um, But hopefully we give you some ideas of how to manage or think about managing drought on your own operation because it has to be adapted to each unique situation and, you know, depending on your your ranch's operation and the percentage of public and private lands and how much range land and how much irrigated pasture. So all of those things factor in to your decisions when we talk about drought. Matt, from an animal perspective, how do you, what, what are the implications of drought from your, from your point of view? Well, I think from, from an animal perspective, I think there's, there, there's a number of factors, like we just said. I mean, there's, there's, a, there, there's a situation where it gets so bad that, you know, you're, you're liquidating animals. And then from an animal performance perspective, if you're maintaining those animals, obviously the resource isn't there for that animal to, to do its normal performance or uh, production uh, requirements. So, you know, you're either bringing in resources to maintain that production or you're effectively losing that production of that animal because the animal at that point is, is trying to survive, trying to do its own, maintain its own uh, maintenance requirements and it's, it's not gonna effectively breed or raise a calf or, you know, enter into that next phase of the production cycle if those resources aren't there. So there, there's a loss of productivity or there's a loss of investment in terms of animals that you've developed in that system because you got to sell them because you can't maintain them. Yeah. We've heard you say a lot, Matt, about this notion of resource compatibility. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at drought conditions in Utah, the question isn't if but when. Right. We, we can see those cycles and we know that it's it's going to happen eventually. And I don't know the exact numbers. There, do you know how, I mean, I've I, seen seven years. I, I mean, Yeah, I think the safest assumption you should make in terms of drought is, is absolutely one in ten. And I think in a lot of cases in Utah, it's more like one in six that, so... Kind of the rule of thumb I've come up with is you should expect that one in 10 years you're going to have a significant disruption in your use of your rangeland, whether that be from drought or wildfire. Those are the, probably the two most common things that cause a disruption in your use of a rangeland. Um, and so I think, I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb. So, so when we view it from that perspective, how, what, are some, what are some recommendations for for preparing or managing through the drought from well, on the range side. I think I think we need to back up a little bit before even that, Ryan, in that, um, of course, being the range guy, I'll argue, always argue that these operations start from the ground up, which is your rangeland. So it's important to note that just like your, your animals, they're not going to perform as well during a drought. And the reason they don't is because, you know, going back to our previous podcast, it, it has to do with the availability of forage, the amount, how much forage is available, and then the quality of that forage, because both of those things can be impacted because of the drought. So number one, you could see a reduction in the overall amount of forage produced because it's dry and the plants just quit growing. Um, <clears throat> 
earlier in the year than they normally would so they don't produce as much forage but because the the cool season grasses the way grass deals with drought is as it starts to fill the stress from that drought one of the advantages that they've evolved with is they can just say you know what things are getting bad i'm just going to close the doors for the year so to speak and and so they'll just go dormant and so you can see those grasses go dormant much earlier than they normally would which then impacts your forage quality so both of those things become important considerations in terms of um, what your range looks like under drought conditions the other aspect that we must keep in mind is just like with your animals during a drought year you might see them lose a body condition score because of drought well grasses can also quote-unquote lose a body condition score in that it may take a year after drought for them to really recover to return to to what we might consider you know pre-drought condition and so one of the things I'd like to kind of caution is a lot of times as soon as the drought breaks and we see things green back up we assume everything's back to normal in reality the most important time to really be careful with that that grass or that forage base maybe the years following drought grasses kind of protect themselves during drought because they'll go dormant early and um, to reduce the negative impacts from drought but the problem is is in the following year they're trying to recover from you know kind of closing early and so if if we add additional stress to them by grazing them heavily in those years that they're trying to recover that's when we can see some 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 damage so i that's kind of all a preface to your question of um you know what impacts do we see from drought but i think the the important consideration here is is one of the few options we have in terms of managing during drought is simply how much grazing is occurring on those lands and so and matt can talk about this more but from an animal standpoint and from a grass health standpoint we need to 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 manage that harvest closely that we're not harvesting too much of that forage and putting the grass at a disadvantage it's easier to see with our cattle because we can see them lose weight if if we've put them in a bad spot the problem with grass we don't see them lose weight but what's happening is when we overuse those grasses the most detrimental thing that occurs is not above ground but it's the below ground and so as they're stressed they're not replacing roots at the regular rate that they replace roots grasses will turn over about 30 percent of the root mass annually so during a drought what happens is they're not able to replace that 30 percent of the root mass which means they lose roots during the drought so therefore the year following that they're at a disadvantage because they don't have the root resources they had previously and so in a sense, it's kind of like your cattle. You've got to make sure you're you're not losing too much weight, so to speak, off your grasses and making sure you're maintaining that roots. It's hard because we can't see them. And so that's probably the overriding concern is that you're managing the harvest of that grass in such a way that you're allowing the plant um, to compensate for that drought over time. But our natural instinct is that Let's feed them much as right. We're in a tough situation. Let's keep them on that as long as possible, right? <laughs> is that not our natural instinct? It is. In fact, the, and I, I understand because we, right. as we enter a drought, everybody looks around and it's triage, and we're thinking, you know, I've got bills coming due, and cattle prices may be poor, or, or whatever they're doing, and so we often kind of go into defense mode of I just need to protect what I've got, and and so oftentimes, I think the way we manage that as well the range will take it this year i'll just you know and so our tendency is we'll just use that up often using it harder than we normally would and understandably i mean things are tough and there's a reason that that's occurring i'm not 
I'm necessarily trying to point fingers, but uh, I think we just need to be aware that if that occurs, then then we have we have to provide some sort of rest on the back end to allow for that grass to recover. So it is our, our natural tendency is to just kind of you know it's like a college kid when money's running low you, you'll eat anything in the house in order to keep yourself going and sometimes that has negative consequences both for the range and and for the animals and so it is a natural tendency but i think that's the one we have to be most cautious with kind of defaulting to well we'll just you know suck it up and get through somehow so i, I guess my question from an animal standpoint you know, if, if you're looking at the range, like you're saying, and, you know, resources are slim and you and you're right. You know, cattle producers, we tend to look at it and go, we're going to use the resource we have available right now. And sometimes we'll, we'll, you know, do some damage. But in terms of, I mean, th- there has to be an economic impact to that. There has to be a range impact to that even the next year and the year after that. So I, I think, and that's unfortunate. That's one of the things that the research here in the state, we haven't really nailed down in fact that's something that we were talking about earlier is the question we need to nail down is we don't know where that that threshold is right because there's right. a point where you're probably pushing your cattle too hard and if you're pushing your cattle too hard then that means you're likely pushing your range too hard and both of those things combine to kind of create a, a compounding effect on the economics of your operation because you'll have lower breed back you'll have lower mm-hmm. wean weights all of those then feed back into what your economic return is and well, so i guess i guess what i'm looking at too is if if you hit it hard this year let's say you graze it like you normally would graze it during a normal year and let's say you get through that season and then that next year you have a normal precipitation event is that rangeland going to recover enough? Is it going to recover to the point where you could use it at a normal rate that next year? So some of the research suggests that there can be a two to three year lag. Okay. So again, you have to think about the fact that that part of a grass's function, not that they think for themselves, but what they do every year is they grow all this above ground biomass, which we're harvesting a portion of with cattle, but then below ground, they have to replace about 30% of the roots. And so what happens in a drought year, especially if you use that range hard, is you stop your root growth. And as you stop root growth, then you stop that replacement of roots, which means you can slough as much as 30 for 30% or more of your root mass. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out if you take away 30% of your roots, that means in the following year, it's not going to be, the roots is, det- is what really determines how big and robust your grasses are. And so if you take away 30% of its root mass in the following year that plant will not produce as much forage and so it may take a year or two so you may not see a negative impact on your animals necessarily if you graze that normally the year following the drought but depending on your grass and what happens in the subsequent years it may take that grass then five years to recover because again it's 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 kind of a numbers game in a in normal year you harvest 50 percent of the forage available right. well the year following drought if it's only producing you know, say 75% of its usual 50%, now you're actually taking more than 50% of that forage that you would normally take. So you see what I'm saying? So it's, it's compounding, right? And so 
in doing that, then you're putting that grass at a greater disadvantage in a time that it should be recovering. You may be slowing or stopping that recovery by over-harvesting in the years following drought. Okay. And so, again, those are all really hard things to kind of keep in your head because they're very abstract. You can't see that occurring. I mean, it's very easy to see a cow. She's skinny and she didn't have a calf. That's an indication of she didn't have enough resources available, poor right? Genetics, yeah. Her poor genetics. <laughs> Garcia's always got to get his genetics dig in there. But from a grass standpoint, right. we, we can't often see that. So it's a little bit harder to keep track of because you're not, it's not as visible. I think one common theme here is that each one of these decisions have, have multi-year impacts, right? right? We go back to our bull, our bull selection. That has multi-year impacts. Our, our grazing decision, unfortunately, good and bad in a, in a ranching scenario, each decision that's made has multi-year impacts. Yeah. So, so Eric, so let's say uh, we go drought, and we assume that the next year was normal. What's the issue if we go drought and then we go, we overgraze, then we go another uh, poor year, then following year? What's the implication? Well, the problem is, is we're all when you you take that approach, we'll just get through this year. That works if the drought only persists for a year, because. On a well-managed rangeland, there will be forage left at the end of the grazing season. And the advantage to a well-managed rangeland is that in the year that you have a drought, you may have some residual forage. It's not great quality, but it's it's forage, right? That you could rely on on that in that drought year. But the problem is, is you're going to consume that in the drought year. And then if you have back-to-back drought years, that's really where we see the impact starting to, to, to come because you may not get any regrowth or very little regrowth in the year following. And so, again, it's that compounding effect, right? It's it's rolling forward with, we consumed all of the residual forage last year and all of the forage that was produced last year. So rolling forward, if we, have, you know, if, if we see a 50% reduction in our, you know, forage production again, then, then you have only what grows in that drought year. And so it's a real compounding impact. More importantly, that's a real compounding impact on the grass itself because it's coming out of a stressful year from the previous year. And then if we graze it again really hard in the in that following year, it, it's just, you're just putting more and more pressure on it. Um, and so we have to be careful because there's a point where, you know, We'd call them ecological thresholds or tipping points, but but there's a there's a point where you may cause enough damage to that rangeland that it may not recover without some intervention, and and so that's what we really worry about. A good condition rangeland has evolved and adapted to, to persist through droughts, but we have to give it the the opportunity to recover from those droughts, and so that's the way I think it's useful to think about it is. Have we allowed, you know, that range, the ability to recover? If not, what we can often see is we reduce the vigor of those perennial grasses. Then as we start to come out of that drought, the problem is, is the grasses aren't able to recover and fill those available niches and use the resources that are now available, water and nutrients. And that sets the stage for weeds to really come in and get a foothold, i.e. cheatgrass. It'd be one of the big ones is um, even, you know, native plants like broom snakeweed that are really undesirable those are the plants that are set up to to really capitalize on those post drought years when we see precipitation patterns return to, to 
you know, adequate precipitation is that they'll really take advantage of that. It takes the grasses a while to recover. Now you've been doing some research because I think uh, interesting. We always say, well, forage we've lost forage because of a drought, but how much forage? And and you've been doing some gathering some data, correct, on actually correlating precipitation to forage availability. Yeah, so there's a, a larger project that I'm a part of that's working in uh, basically Utah, Nevada, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, Wyoming, Colorado. Um, and one of the things that we're really focused on is is the variability because we know, as we've talked about, seems like every podcast we <laughs> hey these systems are variable and we don't know what normal looks like and so as we look at those trends we're looking you know at the past and then even trying to look into the future how variable is that for each production because what we're finding is that it's it's highly variable which we all know um, but to see it mapped out it becomes quite um, alarm I don't know that alarming is the right word quite it makes an impression because you realize that there's no such thing as a normal year as you look at that forage availability and the swings in that forage availability what you realize is the challenge is we're trying to manage for a stable low risk livestock operation in a highly variable high risk climate and so how do we how do we kind of cut the tops and bottoms off from those those oscillations with their management i think that's ultimately what we're what we're trying to do now we talked about the economics and, and strategies. Uh, you know, do we do we get off early? Do we do we liquidate? I mean, what what are some common strategies, drought strategies that, that you've seen, <laughs> or all the above? I think it, it depends, and it, and it kind of goes back to everything we've talked about. You know, is it the one year? Is it the double year? Is it how severe is it? What did the previous year look like? Um, I, I think, you know, and this is one of the problems, and we've talked a little bit about this, is from a production standpoint, uh, we tend to be very reactive. We're not, we, we don't tend to be very proactive, especially with, with drought. You know, so if a drought hits and it's very severe, one of the first things you tend to see people doing is, is they may come off, come off pasture early. You know, and that's and that's fine. You know, they're trying to kind of do what 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 Dak is talking about in terms of preserving that for the long term. You know, the next strategy you tend to see is kind of this this liquidation of cattle, and that's where we kind of get into some maybe some strategies of which cattle you actually liquidate. You know, and I think we talked a little bit about this last time in terms of you know if you're you're if you're in a bad way. Um, me personally, I, I'm getting rid of the the young unproductive cattle and the reason for that is and i'm talking calves young females the reason for that is is those those are probably your most costly animals and they're not really doing anything to pay bills that year so your calves you know from an economic standpoint yeah you're probably gonna have to sell them early they're gonna be lighter but you're in my mind you're looking at what the impact is for that next year because if you keep those calves you're taking resources from those cows to be productive next year. Um, the other thing is, you know, depending on how how the strat what what the year is like and whether it's a second year, you may need a different type of cow after that second year of drought. 
you know, that cow that might be adaptable that first year that made it through that, you know, was, was very resource compatible. You might actually, if, if there's damage to the rangeland, there's an extended drought, you might actually need to go to a more resource uh, adaptive type type animal. You know, those cows that might have been very flexible and adaptive that, that previous year for the drought that might have made it through might have nutrient requirements once again that might be a little bit higher than what you're able to provide that year. So, you know, just like everything we talk about, it, it's really dependent. It's really variable. But, you know, one thing that I, I tend to hear a lot of producers say is I'm going to sell my older cows. And for me personally, as a geneticist, as as, a, as someone involved in beef production, those older cows are, are really your cows that have adapted to that system. You know, they've they've had calves multiple years. They've lived maybe through those some of those leaner years. So those are the ones that are going to be very very, you know, adaptable. Might be able to make it through more more easily. Now, from a genetic standpoint, your your heifers, your younger animals, genetically they have the potential to be better, but you don't know what they are. You know, you don't know what they're going to produce. You don't know how adaptive they're going to be. And then they're in such a fragile time point of their production cycle. You know, they still got a growth requirement. You're going to breed them. You're going to ask them to lactate in an environment that's very resource depleted. Now, the likelihood of that animal making it into her third, fourth year goes down dramatically in that scenario. So genetically, she might be better. But production wise, she's not adapted to that system yet. You know, more than likely you're going to lose her and you're going to lose all that investment going into her to get her into the system. So, you know, those are just some of my thoughts on it. But, you know, there, there's, there's strategies from everything. We, we saw some, what was it, two, three years ago, you know, you know, getting new rangeland, you know, getting new leases, you know, sending cattle out to the Midwest to feed in hopes that they can maintain them long enough to, to, to sustain the drought because they had some investment in them. Now, I can't speak on the economics of that, but that seems a little costly to me. But, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's a, a viable strategy is what I got. I'm just getting that. So, Ryan, the question I have is <clears throat> it seems like a lot of times um, we want to feed our way out of these situations. Mm-hmm. You know, you might be on a public permit and so the, the BLM or the Forest Service, you know, or, or even your own private range, you know, by July, you're out of feed. And so you're not able to graze into August and September like normal. Um, or, you know, so you're coming home 45 days early. So it seems like sometimes one of the strategies is either you either sell them, so you just liquidate your excess hoping to kind of get through the bottleneck, or you feed them. Basically, you try to make that bottleneck bigger. Um, economically, how do those things compare? I mean, those seem to be the two most common strategies is sell everything or, you know, sell 60% of my herd or whether you're shipping cattle or whether you're buying hay out of a a non-drought state. But economically, I mean, in a sense, both of those meet the requirements for me, right? Because we've got cows off the range so the range can recover. We're, We're taking care of their health needs. But the, to me, the, the key here is economically, <laughs> what does that mean, right? Because we've met the demands over here, but can we survive economically in that scenario? Yeah, are we going to be available next year <laughs> yeah. because we spent all our money? Yeah, no, and I, I think in a perfect world, um, you talk about 
of flex operational flexibility, you have excess capacity so that you can pull those off early and you have pasture and you have resources available, private. That's that's the perfect world scenario. That takes quite a bit of planning to have that available. What's the real world scenario? And capacity, right? You have to have those resources. <laughs> well, you, that, yeah, you have to have enough land. Ma- yeah. At least that's been my experience is the land mass is often limiting right. for those options to be available all the time. And one of the issues is, is as soon as you start as soon as you pull those animals off and you start feeding them, your cost of production just changed dramatically. Right. Right? So you better, if, if that's your scenario, if that's what you want to do, you better assume that either you better be selling those, your expectation for what you sell those for are better be higher because your cost of production just went up dramatically, or you have access to cheap feed, right? Mm-hmm. Which is often difficult, but... Especially you know, in a drought year. In a drought year. But they also, I mean, you're in a catch-22 because if you sell them, usually, right? Everyone's selling Everyone's them. selling them. And, and supply and demand kick in, and, and, and you're going to take it, uh, you know, a lower price than you would like for those cows. But uh, in those scenarios, I often look at it as, as how do I minimize my losses, mm. right? It may not be what is the most profitable, but you know what? This is a survival year. How do I minimize my loss? And oftentimes, right, if, if I can sell those and minimize my loss and not have to worry about feeding, that may be your best scenario. But if you have, have resources and feed and you can acquire those at a reasonable rate, you know, you may be better off to, to feed those. But unfortunately, a lot of times it is, is how do I, I'm going to take a loss. So here's a question for you. In Utah, what, in, in a, I know it keeps referring to normal year. What, what is the, the cost to maintain a cow in a normal year in Utah? Cow or calf or what? Uh, I guess just a cow that that's getting ready to calf or maintaining a calf. On an annual basis. On an annual basis. On a, on a norm, normal <coughs> year. I mean, I, I've, I've seen estimates anywhere from 400 and something to $800. Yeah, so Utah, so I'm using uh, some just some data that's collected, and, and we're, some of your best operations are that 350 range, mm-hmm. and, and your higher costs are around that 500. Okay. But that's based on that we're feeding them on public rangelands. So during a drought year, that, that's going to go up significantly. Yeah, because okay. you, you add two months of, of feeding that. Oh, yeah. Right? You just change. Well, even a month can dramatically. Yeah, a month. I mean, you just changed your competitive, because Utah has a competitive advantage. We can produce cheap because of those public rangelands. We, we can, our cost of production are less than, than a lot of other, play, uh, other places. But as soon as we pull off early and start feeding, we're going to be a higher cost. Because demand be, for hay is also going to go up, which yeah. is probably going to drive up price. So you're and just. You look where hay goes in Utah. Right, we're we're heavily involved in the export market. Yeah, uh, our hay is usually higher quality, so there's high demand for dairies. Right, we're shipping a lot to dairies. Do we really want to be competing with dairies on, on buying? I mean, it's, <laughs> it makes it very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> the economics are tough. Yeah, no, that is tough. Yeah, so I, I guess one of the other questions I have, Ryan, is one of the strategies that um, I think was developed. I know Justin Derner's published some work on it. Um, you know, they call it a flexible stocking, where a portion of your herd is is uh, steers you held from the year before, with the thought being, as we enter a year, if it looks like it's a drought year, then I, I, I sell those yearlings as short yearlings or as lights, and I send them to a feedlot or somewhere. 
that way you're not losing you know genetic material you're not selling cows that are producing right and so there's i think the thought is that there's less risk involved with you know using those yearlings as easily liquidated you know liquidatable animals economically does that i mean what does that look like in terms of risk because the most common thing i hear is well i don't want to get in the yearling game because that's awful risky but mm-hmm. <laughs> i kind of chuckle because we're already in a risky game already <laughs> right because we're assuming that we're going to have a normal year when we don't have normal years and so what does that look like economically for those kind of you know holding a i don't know say 25 or 30 percent of your yearlings annually to make up your herd so that you have that buffer you know you just sell them early does that does that work yeah so um there was a there was a financial tool developed it's called real options and real options uh, the easiest way to explain that is is think of a the author that developed it painted he, he said think of a tomato plant not all the tomatoes ripen at the same time so you're gonna pick different tomatoes based on the time they ripen. And, and within management, you want a project or you wanna be able to develop a strategy that you have options, right? And what you're talking about, Eric, is, is managerial options. And so we look at these real options as the option to exercise either keeping or not keeping those, those stalkers, right? And what that does is it, it helps you manage risk and it gives you flexibility mm-hmm. to adapt to conditions. If you're solely focused, right, on one line. Cow-calf. Cow-calf. If there's a disruption, what are your options? You, well, you've got all your eggs in one basket, yeah. so you don't have a lot of options. You have no options to exercise. And so from a management perspective, but this, I, I'm, this is difficult, I, I understand, but from a man, purely management perspective, if you can diversify that, operation to give yourself the option to exercise those different strategies right you you just put into place a way to manage that risk well that kind of goes back to one of the things we talked about last time in terms of calving season yeah you know one of the things that we have preached for for years is this controlled calving season having all your cows bred within this 60 to 90 day window so they all calve around the same time and kind of what we've done with that is we've put all our calves in one basket right there. Now, an uncontrolled calving season where you just, and, and I'm not recommending either, so I'm just, this is for the sake of argument. So, folks, Matt Garcia, no, just Matt, Matt, I am not recommending an uncontrolled calving season. Calving season. <laughs> but it kind of goes along with the tomato analogy. From a uncontrolled calving season where you're running that bull with those cows 24-7, 365, the vast majority of your cows are going to calve, you know, biological rhythm. They're going to calve within a certain time of year. But you're going to have those those earlies and those lates that calve as well. So it kind of lends to the, what we're talking about here in terms of you would have the vast majority of your calf calf pot from one, one time of the year. But you'd have these laggers to kind of market, you know, maybe during the tough times or, you know, maybe diversify your marketing or have something to market year round. So, I, I, and I, once again, I'm not advocating for either either one. I'm just saying this kind of goes along with, with some of the drought planning in terms of, you know, maybe having something, not having as animal, many animals in one production time point at the same time. You have, have them in different times. So, I mean, that may, I don't, I don't know if that's a sound drought strategy, but. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Derek. I was just going to say, I found it interesting in some work that John Renton's done over in Wyoming, 
they suggested a later calving date could help um, incre- increase profitability. Do I understand that right? Yeah. Just, just a later calving date could increase profitability. And I haven't dug in to figure out all the, the whys, but um, you know that was one of the strategies they identified was a later calving period to help deal with, with drought. And so it's interesting to... That's something we've also advocated for other reasons other than drought, you know, matching your animal to your resource. I assume it probably has to do with reduction in costs. Yeah. Ryan, is that? Yep. Well, probably because you got, if you have a cow that's, you know, third trimester during the the height of the drought, you know, her energy requirements are still high, but they're not as high as when that calf's on the ground. So if you can get her through that point, I mean, there's, there's some implications to that as well from a production standpoint, but... I don't know, maybe it's just uh, you're hoping that you get through and maybe you have some of that that late season forage or something else happens that you're able to maintain her at that, that highest level of nutrition status. That Yeah, well, I think the biggest thing is you'd put her, she'd be on range by the time she calved or shortly thereafter. And so right. therefore, you're not feeding her at her most costly you know, energy and nutrient demand well, I mean, time frame. If you look at it up here in Utah too, from just kind of same standpoint where we calve, you know, it's colder, so she's got a higher nutrient demand to stay warm. She's lactating. There's no forage on the ground, you know. So there's there's some challenges there. So I mean, it, it makes sense in a lot of ways from a cost standpoint. You know, one of the the underlying issues too is is uh, you know, from a systems perspective, you better have the financial capability to withstand the drought, right? I mean, that's that's the bottom line. Is is you better have some working capital. You better have some reserves in place. Um, to you know, because we often say working capital is a shock absorber of the system because it can it can make up for those deficits that may occur. And so you know, I, as as a producer, right, every year understanding that you know what next year may be a drought. I better hold back some financial reserves. Not buy that new new pickup truck. <laughs> You know, I was, I was thinking the other day, there's an ag economist that used to say, you know, family living should be measured on the price of a new Corvette, <laughs> right? We should never be paying more for family living than a price of a new Corvette, but I think it should be switched to a price of a new Dodge Diesel. Yeah. <laughs> that should be our new metric and not a Corvette. But... Some families are living better than others. But, uh, you know, it's not my, it's, it's never been my perspective to tell people how to spend their right. money. It's, you're, you're in a risky business. And I recognize that and respect that, but right, you better be putting into place uh, if if you have a, a strong year profitable profitability wise. Understand that I better hold some reserves back financially to to prepare for that off year. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that that I guess I would advocate is to at least think about some sort of drought strategy or having some sort of strategy in place so that as you start to experience that drought knowing what you're going to do you know am, am i set up to sell do i have some yearlings you know where's where's my fluff right where can i cut some corners um to, to get through and i i think again you know I'd, I'd never want to be presumptuous enough to know enough about everything to tell everybody exactly what they should do but i think you know looking at some of the strategies deciding which ones work for you you know maybe the yearling option maybe you don't have enough winter forage to carry yearlings from the year forward and so that's not an option and so maybe the the calving you know a later calving date's an option but you know for other operators 
with the dates that they go on to the forest, a late calving date doesn't work because of breeding concerns. And, you know, you've got to have a calf that can travel by the time you go on to your, right. you know, your May 15th permit. So, you, you know, you can't be taking a two-week-old calf. Yeah. And so there's all of these factors that factor. And so... You know, maybe you live in an area where you can find cheap forage, and so maybe feeding is a more feasible option to feed your way out of a drought than it is for for other individuals. But I think those are, I mean, those are questions that you have to answer. You know, each producer has to sit down and and kind of think through on their own. I think that's all we would encourage is that, you know, sit down and, um, you know, there's some pretty good information available to help you think about what types of strategies and which ones would work for your operation. But I, I, I think that's... That's what I think we would hope that people would take away from this is to start thinking about how they might manage for the next one, although it looks like we're headed into one now. I mean, hopefully we all get a bunch of rain in the next month, but <laughs> statistically, June's not a great rain month for Utah. So, um, Well, to kind of build on that as well, I think, you know, having that plan in place is essential, but I think also planning a couple steps ahead, like if you're, if you're in calving, you know, be planning for what you're doing in marketing. You know, understand what you need, what's going to, some, some roadblocks you might have. So essentially, planning a couple phases ahead of your production system so you're being proactive. So if this does happen, you have a strategy in place. You know, so it's not, oh, well, I have 250 calves on the ground right now and I just, I haven't had rain for 190 days. You know, what do I do? You know, you know, maybe sit down, have that plan. You know, be planning a couple stages ahead of in your production system, so you can kind of figure out, you know, the scenarios of this is what I'm going to do, this is what, I'm, what I can do. So you're not caught in this supply demand crunch of going, well, I'm in the same bad situation as everyone else. I need the same things. So now my cost of production has gone up, my cost of obtaining resources has gone up because I didn't, you know, I didn't plan accordingly. I think it's a really good point, Matt. I think um, one of the things I learned from you know, in my past, I'd done some work with wildlife and managing, you know, through habitat improvements, wildlife. And it's interesting that the the first thing they advocate for there is identifying your most limiting factor, mm-hmm. you know, the, the least common denominator. So is your, you know, as you started to get into lean times, where's your bottleneck? Is your bottleneck winter feed? Is your bottleneck spring feed? Because that's where that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, right? So if, mm-hmm. you know, you might have plenty of irrigated pasture, so you think, well, drought's no big deal if my range is bad because I can bring them home and just, you know, pasture them out. So everybody will have a different scenario, but I think even just thinking about where's my biggest limitation? Because I think in some cases, it's summer forage, you know, on an operation I was on help trying to help them in a drought a couple of years ago, you know, they were completely relying on their, their public land permit for their summer forage, which a lot of people are. That's nothing to be ashamed about. Yeah. It's it's the way a state that's 70% federally held works. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, looking at that operation, that, that bottleneck for them was summer forage because he needed them off his irrigated pasture to raise hay to get them through the winter. And so as the BLM or the Forest Service was suggesting, hey, he was going to have to come home 45 days earlier, then there's this crunch of, well, where am I going to get my summer forage from? You know, because right. I can get them through the winter. I, I'm confident I can raise enough hay, even in the drought, to feed them through the winter. But I don't know how I'm going to get them from, you know, July 15th to October 15th when I start normally feeding hay. And so, you know, whatever that limiting factor, that least common denominator is, I think just even identifying it and start thinking about how you're going to mitigate disruptions in your production cycle in that 
bottleneck, I think, is a, is a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great place. Well, in the, in the following podcast, we're going to dive into this topic even a little deeper. So um, we're just about out of time here. Uh, I think covered some really good topics. Matt, any questions that are arising from, from Facebook that, that we can answer? We had one. Um, of course, I can't find it now. <laughs> I think we actually covered some of it. So hold on one sec. Yeah, and if anyone has questions, just feel free to chime in on the chat and we can answer them. We actually got the computer in front of us today, so we're not going to be answering these after the fact. Okay, so let's see. There was one that came up. If my computer will load technology. I feel like uh, this is a normal extension program now. You know, I mean, because what you talked about is that SWOT analysis, right? Right. In business, we do the SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses. Uh, I mean, that's right. You look at that, your forage system. Where's where's our weakness? And I think yeah. I think that's a that's an easy way to identify and start developing that plan is where's our weakest link. Yep. And let's work from that point forward. All right. So we did have one question, and it was talking about. Uh, if we could provide some insight into enterprise selection for drought-prone areas, for example, custom grazing, cow-calf, stocker yearling, multi-species, uh, can you recommend ratios for destocking enterprises? For example, 60 to 40 cow-calf to yearlings and destock yearlings at sign of drought. Uh, is there a specific cattle class type breed or phenotype that is more beneficial in areas of drought? You want to start? Okay. <laughs> so I think we cover some of it in terms of, um, I'll let uh, Eric tackle the grazing side of it, but um, from a, from a de-stocking uh, perspective, like I said, usually in, in my, my opinion, you're usually keeping your adaptive productive cows in the system. Um, we we got to remember something though, when we're de-stocking, when we start selling breeding animals, you know, adapted breeding animals. You know, we, we get to a point kind of economically, if we're gonna restock after that drought, we have a high cost situation there. Because not only are we bringing new breeding animals in that are not adapted to our system, we're also more than likely gonna have a higher input cost in those animals, but we're also gonna have a higher culling rate in those animals. Because a lot of those animals are just gonna fall out of our system. They're not adapted to it. You know, they're just not gonna do well. So it's gonna take us, and once again, this isn't a one-year restocking operation at that point. If we've sold the majority of our breeding animals, we're trying to restock, we're going to be essentially trying to rebuild that adaptive herd for years to come. You know, so that's one thing. Um, Matt, just somewhat strange as you say that, as we sell those breeding animals, we're also selling, we can't just look at the loss from that year. We're selling those future earnings as right. well, right? Because that's really when that cow's going to make you money. Well, especially right. if she's already paid for herself, yeah. right? Matt, Matt yeah. often says it takes about five years for that cow to pay for herself. So if you're selling a seven-year-old cow... She's just starting to get in the you, money. You literally gave up your cash cow, right? Yeah. Like, literally, you gave up your golden goose. Whereas, you know, not to jump too far into this, but I think that's the advantage to that variable stocking with the yearlings. Those are animals you can give up, yeah. and you're not giving up future returns yeah. because their returns, when you sell them at the, at the you know, they're going to go to slaughter or go to a feedlot or, or wherever, that's it. That's where their return ends, where a cow... 
you know, her return is, you've already invested a bunch in her, and her return's way into the future, not just tomorrow. Especially if she's productive. Yeah, and so I, I think, you know, that fluid herd of some, and I don't know what the exact ratio is, you know, the person yeah. asked about a ratio. Some of the numbers I've seen are, you know, like 70, 30, 60, 40. I think right. a lot of it would depend on how variable your system is. Right. Because as we get into some of these desert systems, they can swing 100% in terms of forage availability. So the more variable your system is, then I think you'd have to build in a greater buffer. The, the less variable your system is, then, you know, maybe you don't need as many of those you know, easily sellable, you know, liquidatable items. And I mean, you'll see some ratios during drought years where th- there's not a yearling on the place. Yeah. You know, they're gone. You know, calves, early weaned and gone. You basically got a breeding herd there. And, you know, and it's, it goes back to what we're talking about economically. You're maintaining your, your producers. Yeah. You're, you're not going to maintain, you know, these, these cost suckers for, for lack of a better term. So it, it's something I spent some time in New Mexico and in northeastern New Mexico specifically, they run an, well, it's, I would dare say it's probably like 80% stalker cattle. And it was always telling. I could tell when it was a drought year, simply not looking at the rain, just simply looking at how many animals I saw. Because those producers that ran the stalkers were able to decide early in the year, hey, yeah. it's a bad year. So therefore, to cut my losses, I'm just not bringing a single animal onto my place. I may not make any money, but I'm not going to lose any money. And right. so, you know, it was a completely different way of approaching production than I was used to coming from, you know, largely cow-calf country, but anyway, it's interesting to think about. Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, from, a, from a breed type, phenotype, you know, this is something we've talked about a lot too from, you know, from Utah. We're not exactly the, uh, the resource plentiful area of the world, so, you know, we're, we're probably not looking to have that 1,600-pound cow out on range you know from a phenotype standpoint we're looking for a more moderate type cow we're probably looking for a cow that is not a huge milk producer and that's that's one thing that we we keep talking about over and over again you know milk the 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 old adage is you know she produces a lot of milk we get a big calf yeah but if she produces a lot of milk she's going to need a lot of hay to do it again you know so you're looking for a cow that's kind of moderate you know kind of you know kind of a lower milk producer and she'll she will still milk and she will still raise a calf and you know through a whole different topic of multiple trait selection you can actually select for that cow that milks a little lighter but that cow has some innate genetic potential to grow on it on what she's providing so you can still get that that good marketable calf uh breed type you know i'm probably not going to touch that um you know different breeds work all over the place you know as long as they're adapted we still have a lot of breed variability um you know crossbred animals are very very adaptable and efficient and resilient you know that that's just plain fact of the matter you know that hybrid vigor is a great thing for resiliency they have a higher degree of survivability they tend to be a little bit more resource you know adaptive and can really adapt in some of those resource limited environments if that crossbreeding is done correctly so that's that's one thing um I think you talked a little bit about grazing strategies, but you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything really prescriptive we can say. Everyone needs to do this because, like we said, you know, it's going to be very variable, and strategy is going to be different. I, I think the one rule of thumb, or the one kind of overarching principle to think about in terms of grazing management, is choosing a more conservative number of animals that you're keeping on the landscape. Right. So, you know, during 
good years, you might be able to run, you know, 25% more animals, but maintaining your herd at that size, the, the downside, and the, and the numbers are clear, the research has shown, the heavier you stock, then the heavier your losses are. The lighter yeah. you stock, then the lighter your losses are. So, again, everybody has to define what that looks like on their own operation, but... You know, the, the one thing that the research has shown, and this I mentioned this last time, research goes clear back to the 50s, showing, you know, those moderate stocking, moderate stock ranges generally have the greatest return because they don't, you know, they may not make as much money in the good years, right. but they won't lose as much in the bad years, which I think is the one thing we're trying to manage the most is not losing money Well, I mean, in the that being years. said, being that my, I know my, I can see my father's not watching, I'll... <laughs> I used to get on quite a bit about a stocking rate because I'd be like, well, we're so underutilizing this range. But what you just said makes total sense now, so maybe he was right in some aspects. So he's not watching, so I can say that. <laughs> well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, the next time, uh, you know, one, one risk management tool is this new pasture range forage insurance. I'll dive into that a little more in the subsequent podcast. We'll talk about different uh, strategies and research that's been done in this area, and we'll hit that. Uh, in some of these subsequent podcasts but thank you um, and please contact us you know with follow-up questions whatever you may have uh, please contact any one of us thank you